Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole. And I'm Akiko Taramoto. And I do have exciting news. Um, I don't know if it's as exciting for you as it is for me, but um, Stand Partners for Life t-shirts. I did mention them once before, but now we've got them. They're in. Uh, we've got men's and women's uh, different designs. You can go, well, I'll give you the the link in just a second. But yeah, I mean, the men's are nice crew neck t-shirts, but, but good material. I mean, I really, I like wearing them. They feel nice. I've done yeah. some, made some videos with them. And then the women's t-shirts are, how would you, I'll let you describe them. Well, they're, they're tanks, right? They're not t-shirts. Right. They're racerback. Okay. Tri-blend. Yeah tank tops more athletic and they're they're really they're uh they're like a very fashionable cut they're not they're not like uh like a dowdy tank tops so. yeah because you actually wear them and yeah i have to say you you look pretty awesome i love when i was going to the gym i looked forward to wearing them there and <laughs> you weren't wearing that gym, shirt when you fell though right uh, who knows uh no i don't think so i think i would remember that um so you can now um if you want to be a stand partner for life you can get your t-shirt. Uh, just go to standpartnersforlife.com slash shirts. That's shirts, plural, shirt with an S. And uh, I always get to, you know, checking out in the grocery store or whatever. People ask me what it is and, you know, then I get to tell them what. Really? Well, That's happened? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, okay. No one asks me when I want It depends my- on the time of day. If it's the end of the day at Trader Joe's. Actually, I have to say any time at Trader Joe's because they force them to be conversational. But (laughs) end of the day (laughs) for any other grocery store, you know, people are, I dig your shirt. What's the, well, maybe also because it's LA. Right. And everybody probably has, you know, a band or something, but. Right. Yeah. Maybe they think it's a band or. Yeah. No, no one ever asks me. And I I feel like. Really? Well, I think it's probably not supposed to, like a man, you can stare at his chest and ask him what's on his shirt, but I think with a woman, you're like really not supposed to do that. I think you're getting a lot of stares and not a lot of questions. Yeah, I don't think so, but um, I think in any case, it's people want to avoid seeming like they're they're staring at the writing on your chest. So yeah, I think. Well, whether you like being stared at or not, um, if you want to to display your Stand Partners love, uh, head on over to standpartnersforlife.com slash shirts and you'll see them there. Like I said, I'm excited. Uh, Yeah. And before we even really get started, I just wanted to point out in case you hear some strange, heavy breathing, that's that's our dog Fleur making her, her podcast appearance. Yeah, I think she's sort of appeared in some other ones, but right now she seems only to be happy if she's curled up next to you and she mm. breathes like Darth Vader now. So <laughs> so you had your bad fall, spent the week in the hospital, missed two months of work. Yep, missed yeah. the tour. And um, and that's where we were last episode where you were here, but now you've been back. Yes. So um, I've been back, what, this is my third week, I think, or fourth week. I forgot. Yeah, I think so. Um. Yeah, and you know, I've I'm sort of storing up observations on what it's like to come back, knowing that maybe I'd want to talk about it a little bit. Um, and yeah, it's you know, it was a challenge to return. It was strange because I kept thinking this has never happened to me, but um, you know, I've been out on maternity leave twice, and and so I've I've had the experience of coming back, but for some reason I probably because I was 
I mean, definitely because I was so sleep deprived. I, I don't really have any memory of what it was like to, to be out and, you know, for a few months and return to the job. So yeah, I, for some reason, it felt like uh, completely uncharted territory to return. And I was nervous about it. You know, I was kind of apprehensive, I guess, also because um, I knew I'd be sitting first stand. And that that's never happened. I never had to like come back, you know, and sit right under the music director's nose upon my return. Oh, so, that's right. Because yeah. I was out your first week back. Yes. Which is, yeah, it was sort of unfortunate timing. So I had to uh, carry my own stuff into work, which our colleagues know isn't isn't the norm. Nathan often, when he's around, <laughs> he always, always carries at least some of my things, including my violin into work. So I'd have to lug my own instrument in and, and my giant seat cushion and all the all the extra paraphernalia I needed was, um, you know, was a challenge. Um, and and yeah, so the first few days back, I would say the first day, I it was also also trying to figure out how to sit. on I had this. I, I've since bought a thinner cushion, but I was sitting on this enormous, nice, you know, heavy <laughs> memory foam cushion. But it did make me too, you know, made made my legs too far from the floor, so they had to bring out like this wooden box so I could put my feet on it and then then I needed a cushion in back. I realized eventually I needed something in back of me because I couldn't reach the back of the seat, which for me is most comfortable when I sit is to have a little support in back. And so there was I felt I felt very You and Joe Silverstein. Oh really? You always sat against the back of the chair? Always, yeah. Oh, you didn't tell me that now I feel like less of a you know Oh okay. I feel like less of a loser. And not a loser, but I always feel like maybe there's something wrong with me psychologically. I, I need something touching my no, back that's or something. Good enough for uh yeah. Former concert master of the BSO. Then. Yes, well, now I, now I feel like I'm I'm in good company because <laughs> I play just like him. So um, <laughs> anyway, so I needed all this stuff and um, and it was this pretty cool piece. This um, but it was so new that we actually didn't actually receive all the movements until maybe the day before, or a few days before, and so it was it was hard to um, feel comfortable playing some of those notes. And um, this was by Thomas Addis. Yes. Um, Inferno, very very cool piece. Um, We've often liked his music. I mean, yeah, really you know, liked it. I for, I think I'm, I know we had done stuff before last year, but I remember we played something at the Bowl last year. It was um, what was it Tevat, called? Tevat, right? Yes, and it was it was really cool. I remember thinking like this. You know, I would love to hear more of his stuff. And then um, I was really glad that we we got to play this piece this year, and it turned out to be I think one of the best pieces we've done. So, you know, that was nice to come back to a piece I was really enthusiastic about, especially. And then, but then, you know, the, um, the rest of the program, it wasn't hard, but it was more exposed than that. I would say the Addis was tough, but um, because it was such big orchestration, it wasn't as scary as, say, you know, like coming back to play Mozart Jupiter Symphony, which, you know, on the surface is not challenging, but, um, you know, how I feel about Mozart and Haydn in orchestra, I think it's the hardest stuff you have to do because, it, you know, it's like a perfect balance of listening and playing. Well, and anybody who's prepared any of those Mozart excerpts for an audition, I'm sure would agree too. I mean, there's not a gimme among them. Yeah, I mean, your concentration has to be up for for all of that. So, so yeah, I mean, it, that, that was hard at first. And then I think by the end of the week, I felt like I sort of gotten back into the swing of things. But then in the, you know, the weeks after that, even I felt like, why, why is this hard? You know, and I realized maybe it's still sort of a hangover from, from being out. Well, let's start physically. I mean, did anything seem strange coming back? Although you had been practicing here standing up. Yeah. Well, you weren't, but so I guess specifically for 
sitting and playing an orchestra and then the kind of repetitive nature of that sometimes. Um, was there anything there that surprised you physically? Um, I, no, I think the first double that we had, I was surprised at how exhausted I was afterwards. Really, really just a lot of concentration. Yeah. So incredibly tired at the end of that day. And I, you know, I, I think that's something that gets better, you know, the more you do it. So, um, that was a surprise though, to see that, um, everything else, you know, that I, I was surprised at how easy it was actually physically on me. Like the sitting didn't bother me. Um, even getting up to turn pages wasn't bad. Wasn't, wasn't sorry to see that nothing about it bothered me, but I was actually amazed at how nothing, (laughs) nothing about being there, sitting there all day long, nothing about it seem to really aggravate anything. I don't know if it's, it's, you know, I've had, as you know, I'm not always the most comfortable physically still. So I don't know if possibly it's slightly delayed my, my full recovery or, but it, certainly there's nothing about it that, that is harming me, I think, and actively. So well, the best we could have hoped for. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So since we're playing Mahler 8 this week, which is unusual, even among his symphonies, um, I thought we might talk about our overall Mahler experience and what it means to play Mahler because it's a little bit different than any other composer, I think. And I mean, we would definitely miss Mahler if we weren't, uh, if his music didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. The, although this isn't, I think, our very favorite or my very favorite Mahler symphony. Yeah, mine either. Although I've, I've enjoyed performing it. We've done two performances out of three. Now we'll have the last one tomorrow, but I've actually enjoyed performing it. There are stretches of it where I'm <laughs> kind of waiting for it to get on to the next thing, but um, it's yeah, unusual. I don't, I don't feel like I'm treading water too much. I just... Yeah, it's the volume of the first part is so staggering that um, it is. I think it's hard to enjoy the first half an hour for me. Yeah, so its nickname is the Symphony of a Thousand, which apparently I guess he never gave any nicknames to any of his symphonies. Like you know, number one is the Titan, which apparently he didn't much care for. I mean, the name. Uh, but and who came up with these? I I don't know. I, I haven't looked into it. I don't know if it was reviewers or students or <laughs> hmm. other conductors or something like that. I mean, Mahler was one of those composers who conducted his own works so often. And, you know, he was what music director. Was he the first music director of the New York Philharmonic? I forgot. Yeah. New York Phil's had so many. Dvorak conducted them, right? <sighs> so cool. You know, and we'll get into this too. I mean, he marked his, the score and parts up with so many details because he knew how all the instruments worked and how, how conducting worked. So you have to actually play all those details as they are in the part, or at least we're led to believe in order to get the effect that he's after. Whereas with Beethoven, you know, you have to add so many more nuances that aren't of course, literally marked in the parts. Well, we were talking about nicknames though. And this being the symphony of a thousand, that's because they're, in addition to the, the giant orchestra, you've got, uh, I forget what size of a choir is called for, but in addition to a big choir, you've got a, a children's choir and then a organ, 
uh, how many soloists up front? Vocal soloists? Ten? Eight? No, there's eight, right? Eight plus the woman right. in the back that comes in near the end. So yeah, as you said, it's so loud. Oh, and no, don't forget the the brass. And, you know, I don't know where they're. Oh. That's right. There's a brass, uh, extra brass choir that, at least in Disney Hall, is stationed up near the top. Just, just in case you were hoping to rescue your ears by <laughs> sitting further away, no luck. Yeah. Well, when he rehearsed, you remember when uh, and Gustavo Dudamel is conducting this week, um, and he rehearsed just that extra brass choir. I mean, how far away would you say they are? I mean, a hundred yards. Several I hundred forget, feet. Whatever it is, yeah, to the top of the hall. I don't know. And it was all. I almost had to close my ears, even when he was just rehearsing them, because yeah. they're they're really bringing it. So in both performances, actually, so far, I've worn our custom earplugs uh, just for the first part, which is yeah, what half an hour. I should because you know what? I've had to do the foam ones, but I, I can't play very well with them in. So. Um, you know, I've had to write plugs in the part when I, and I actually sort of have to remember because sometimes I can get away with just the one, but, um, cause I've got Piccolo maybe eight feet away. Right. Then, yeah. There are a couple bad Piccolo moments. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a high, is it a B flat? There's a bad moment. So I've got, I've got to write plugs before there and then frantically take them out. Cause there's, I think there's a really like kind of delicate, passage after that intonation wise and so i, I really can't and these are the, the just the generic thing. drugstore ones that yeah. kind of block all the sound yeah so you okay see i just leave mine in they're the ones that supposedly yeah. let some some good sound through i should do that um so loud I, I i can't imagine i keep looking at the audience in the first few rows <laughs> wondering like in the first part in the game like are they just are they gonna look like they just, you know, can't take it anymore. They look all right. They look like they're they're surviving. So maybe it's not quite as loud as I think out there. Well, I, I kind of remember uh, an old Peanuts cartoon, you know, the Charlie Brown and Snoopy ones. I know there's one where one of the characters asks another character, what happened? Because they, they emerge and they're, they're like all windblown and stunned looking. And then they say, I've been mollered. Um, maybe it even shows them listening to a stereo in the other room first. Really? But yeah, yeah. Really? Well, you know, because Snoopy was always playing piano and sh- uh, what was his name? Um, you know, the boy that always... Schroeder? Schroeder. So, there, there were a lot of composer references. But I mean, peanuts. I feel like Mahler kind of went out of vogue for a long time, right? Yes. And who brought him back? Uh, isn't Bernstein? Oh, okay. So... Kind of credited with... So that was probably that era. Okay. All right, that makes sense. And you know, thank goodness. I mean, we love, we love Mahler. I mean, I do. I know you do too. But yeah, well, and why? I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, did he go out of fashion because he was considered too neurotic, or actually because he was considered too romantic for that sort of the time, including the two world wars and between? I think he was just seen as too emotional right it's like maybe they lumped him in with like zemlinski or something 
Yeah, I I should be more up on uh, up on my history. I got so into listening to the Schubert songs. So la- last week we did was it just last week we did the masses with um, yes the so Haydn and Beethoven. Matthias Gerno is one of our soloists, and he's one of my favorite singers. And no, I mean he's probably you know by far my favorite singer. And so one of your favorite soloists or artists yeah. in general. Yeah, yeah. and so I got very into listening to his recordings and so I you know I spent a lot of the week listening to Dishana Mulleran this week and you know listening to to those songs and then and then going ahead and playing this symphony it does it feels maybe that's part of why Mahler fell out of fashion maybe it's you know it's it's so emotional and and it doesn't it doesn't spare detail uh-huh. you know the way that like I think Schubert really just is it's, it's you know can be so so straightforward and so you know so touching because it's just it's just, can be really simple. And the songs and think, are talking about a brook and some flowers and you know it kind of leaves it at that. Like, <laughs> yeah, it just you know and the like, melodies are so they just speak for themselves and then and maybe Mahler felt like just too much you know and I think Mahler eight certainly feels like too much to me sometimes. Yeah, uh, so you know. Gustavo was explaining to us this week that, uh, so he wrote eight and nine, eighth and ninth symphonies in the same year. And it was a period where he was, let's see, I mean, all the worst thoughts and worries were, uh, consuming him. Right. So he was dying and at the same time worried about dying. These usually go together. <laughs> yeah. Well, I forget if he knew he was dying or if he was <laughs> just worried about it. And it <laughs> happened to be, happened to also be dying. <laughs> lucky coincidence that it was happening <laughs> yeah. too. And then yeah. his wife was cheating on him. Right. She was working on her, her escape raft. Right. And he was constantly comparing himself to Beethoven. And that's why even the thought of writing an, a ninth symphony really kind of crushed him. Mm. And I feel like anytime we play a Mahler symphony, we're sort of always comparing it to nine, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was one of those pieces... I remember being um, a teenager, I was probably 15, and I was at music camp with college kids. And so, A, I felt very important and, you know, anything they would say, I felt like I was being let in on some great secrets. And, Secret of the pros. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Secrets of the pros. And I remember, yeah, a couple of them were obsessed with Mahler 9. I, you know, I was even embarrassed to ask, like, Maybe Mahler 9 was a string quartet or <laughs> maybe it was like a solo violin etude or something. I don't know. I mean, I pretty, I was pretty sure it was an orchestral piece and I was pretty sure it was a symphony, but I'd certainly never heard it. Um, I think at that point, the only Mahler I had played was the first Five. two movements of the first symphony. Oh, okay. So when they would talk about Mahler 9, like it was just, it was like music that I knew, but just way better. And how old were you? What? 15. Yeah, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even hear about Mahler 9 until I think I sat down to basically sight read it. But, you know, that's a whole other story. Well, go ahead and tell the story. I mean, this, I this is the episode for I don't want to cut off your, you know, your Mahler 9 introductory No, that's it. I mean, I, I think, you know, anybody listening, if you've played or heard Mahler 9, you, you, you know what we're talking about, how profound and amazing a piece it is. Um, if you've played it, you'll know how draining a piece it is to play, especially the end. 
but yeah, to <laughs> talk about your first uh, Mahler 9. You know, and I'm a little hesitant because um, I don't want to cast my organization or my colleagues in any kind of, you know, unduly negative light. But um, this was a long time ago. Yeah, but it was still the same organization I'm working for now. So it's never the same river. <laughs> well, so I'll try to I'll try to make us look as as not complicit as I can. But um, I wasn't here for this, so I'm yeah. I'm so blameless. Nathan's in the clear. But um, we were playing. I forget if it was a regular thing back in the day, or we played up in Ojai. You know, long long before it is was what it is now. So that makes sense. So um. So I go up there and I think, you know, we we had only the rehearsal that day for this concert. And I maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Maybe we had another rehearsal. I just remember being like completely shell-shocked at this piece. And we sat down to rehearse it and um, Pierre Belez was conducting. We start rehearsing. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm kind of, yeah, just I was faking like all of it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it. <laughs> a lot. I mean, and that makes complete sense because it's really hard. So, like, looking at it now, thinking, what what was I thinking, you know? And, I, of course, you know, we sit down to play the concert and it was, I was, you know, it was hard to embarrass me. I had a lot of exuberance, enthusiasm for my job back then. It was very hard for me to feel that humiliated. And so, I really remember just just feeling so personally embarrassed, which is hard as a section player in the back. It's like, why should, you know, no one's looking at me, but <laughs> you know, I was just horrified. If I wish I'd had a paper bag, you know, I could have put over my head to stand. I just, I felt like we didn't even deserve to stand up for a bow, you know, and, and it lasts for over an hour. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean at the end, you know, yeah. And so I just, you know, I was there, I was just doing God knows what, you know, and then stand up at the end and I, I looked out in the front row and I see David Hyde Pierce. Like, Niles Crane. No, Niles Crane standing <laughs> front and first row. And, you know, he's the, these people are standing up giving this obligatory standing ovation. Because I guess if you don't at the end of Mahler 9, it's really terrible. It's like, you know, throwing tomatoes at the stage. So since they didn't want to do that, being a nice, polite American audience, you know, they... They they stood up and I, I just I I I feel like I have a snapshot of seeing Niles standing there, you know, and thinking, God, <laughs> he is never gonna come back. When was the last time you had an unexpressed thought? I'm having one now. <laughs> I still haven't seen him, and I I hope he comes to an LA Phil concert. Well, not after that. <laughs> Maybe though. Okay, I'm so telling that's why. you, he's, he's he's scarred forever. So he's telling the he's telling this same story at cocktail parties somewhere. Now. Yeah. <laughs> If we're lucky, if he hasn't just buried it among, you know, least treasured memories. But um, that happened. And then, you know, you'd think that after that, I would have um, maybe made it a point to to learn this part really well, just in case, you know, in the future. But, um, you know, I moved to Chicago and actually Mahler 9 was the first piece that I ever heard the Chicago Symphony play. Oh, right. Because we were playing it at Ravinia. Yeah. The day you got to town, basically. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's uh, so I, I think this piece, like now that I think about it more, is sort of figured somewhat prominently in my in my memories, you know, good and bad. But um, and I was playing that performance. You were and you were, you know, Gloria and I had just got to town and and we'd driven in from St. Louis that morning on the final leg of our, you know, cross country road trip to, to, to Chicago from L.A. And um and so 
you know, I was in my apartment and she said, hey, do you want to go up to Ravinia and go see a concert this evening? And I was like, not really. <laughs> I don't feel like driving anymore. <laughs> She's like, I'll drive. So, you know, we went up there and, oh, and first I think I had your number finally. So, you know, I said, well, I'll call this guy, I you know, in the orchestra. Right. Okay. See if you can so get that, us tickets. that was the call. That was the call. And, and you said, sure. And I remember you answered the phone while you were playing Frisbee. You were frisbee. like, you were actually running to catch the Frisbee and talking on the phone. Frisbee? What yeah. Was that? You were definitely playing Frisbee. Oh, you were like kind of out of breath. Okay. I, I kind of remember a Frisbee crew one summer there. So that must have been. So then, yeah, you, you were running around. You said, sure, I can get you tickets. And and then um, you came to let us into the parking area, you know, which I, of course, came to know very well um, behind the stage and and came out and I didn't recognize you even though I'd just seen you like a month before or something oh. you looked all different in your outfit and anyway I really remember <laughs> that and then and then just walking around backstage a little and meeting some people here you know because they're going to be my colleagues in a few weeks yeah and, and then you know hearing the concert and you know I think I sat really close actually I had great seats and um yeah like really enjoying it, it was Barenboim conducting oh at Ravinia yeah and it was well, that was rare just you know of course it was great and I I was like so proud, you know, this is my, this is my, my new orchestra. So, um, so that was a really nice feeling. And then, and then, anyway, so that was that Waller Nine experience. And then I think maybe that spring, um, we went on tour, you know, Chicago Symphony went on tour to Europe. Right. With Mahler Nine, but because you guys had just played it, I think we didn't rehearse it very much. Right. Um, so and that was actually, a Baron Boyne tradition too, not yeah, rehearsing just, much just for tour. It, now I look back and look, wow, you know, what an amazing way to operate a tour. But um, yeah, so we went on this tour. I think it was April. He didn't rehearse before we left. And so we get to Berlin or something. And I was like, we're going to play this piece. And like, I've literally, like, you know, other than that horrible time in Ojai, I've never played this piece from beginning to end. I'm like, well, that's awful. And then there were a few of us. I think I remember Ken also. He had joined in like February. Okay. And so there we are. Like he had never played it. And so there were a few of us who were just like, this is going to be really scary. You know? And then I think it was pretty bad in Berlin. And then then we get to Vienna and it was terrible. Like it was really, really bad. And, and you know, how you sit like six stands deep on that stage. Right. That's um, a... A famously like, tiny stage. Wide and very shallow. So there we are. Like I was like in six stand or something. So I could, you know. May as well be in the next room. Yeah. And you know, Barenboim, he's, I love him. Like he's, he's amazing. But clarity of gesture is not, you know, something he right. prioritizes, which is, you know, to me, that's fine. I mean, that's, it doesn't, I think it, in the music making is amazing. But if, if you're someone who doesn't know the piece very well, it, it can be, you know, a disadvantage to see that so yeah uh it was i remember just feeling completely out to sea at that that music ruin performance and and so embarrassed because you know you're really close to the audience there in the right. back of the first and, I, and there i am you know i think there's like a bunch of people sitting like maybe you know eight feet away from me and i was like <laughs> again i was like please don't look at me i'm like am i ever gonna have an experience with Mahler 9, where I don't feel like <laughs> crawling under my chair at the end and just, you know, dying of embarrassment. <laughs> well, and so why why is that piece so hard and 
you know, is all Mahler like that or, or you know, let, let's, let's get into just what makes it so difficult. I mean, first of all, it's technically extremely difficult if you take the however many pages, 25 pages of the Mahler 9 first violin part. I mean, it's pretty dense. Yeah, you know, and, and back in the day, I think the hardest thing for me was, um, yeah, the no. I mean, when I didn't know what the notes were, super gnarly, you know. And yeah, they don't make a lot of sense out of context. Those weird, and you, it's easy to get hung up on those weird grace notes, you know, that you actually can't hear very well. But like, if you really think about trying to play all those notes totally correctly, it can be, it can be hard to, to do. I mean, it's hard anyway, but it, you know, you're just adding to the difficulty and then um the tempo changes for you know doing it with Barenboim it was different you know a lot of times from performance to performance which again makes it even better you know but as a performer if you don't know him that well if you don't know it that well I think it was terrifying and he would suddenly just kind of decide like you know this is going to take off today (laughs) yeah he was not the same night to night it was so great you know it was really great but um and now I, I, you know, of course, I think of that so fondly and wistfully. It's like it was, he was so spontaneous and um, he expected you to be there with him, you know, which is exhilarating if you can really, if you can do it. Yeah, but that, that was the piece where I got the worst look from him. Is that when you came in wrong? No, um, that was, I mean, I'm sure that happened many times, but the biggest was definitely Tchaikovsky 5 <laughs> in the end. But that, in that case, he cued us wrong and everybody else was smart enough not to come in i came in probably because i'd been scared by this Mahler nine thing i was like from now on i'm always going to just be staring at him all the time and do whatever he does and then that cost me in tchaikovsky five but no and Mahler nine i it was one of those things where i i looked down there were so many notes and i looked down at the part at a crucial <laughs> moment and when i looked back up like I couldn't tell what beat he was on. Like, I didn't know what he had been doing in those two beats that I was looking at the music. And when yeah. I looked back up, not only was he somewhere that I didn't, didn't expect, but he was staring directly at me. And he actually, he kept conducting with his right hand, but with his left hand, he was staring at me and his, with, with his left hand, he made a gesture like shrugging his shoulders. Like, what are you doing? You know, you personally in the back of the section. What? And that was, yeah. Yeah takes a while to recover from that yeah yeah i i haven't seen him in so long it, you know it would be great to play with him conducting again yeah there were moments where he was scary and you know unfortunately i was never in the sort of tractor beam right never but, the target um, of the ire um so yeah i so where was i with the mauler night i'm so yeah I, I think you know the things that seemed really hard back then were the notes trying to figure out beat patterns were like were a cellarondos you know these things that would some stuff that's not even really marked that he would he would do or you know it's traditional you know and right. if you don't know it then that's scary so that was hard but these days i mean by far the scariest thing you know when i talk about this with colleagues of ours and friends it's like the scariest thing in Mahler 9 is just how quiet it is at the end right you know, and for me, I, it's not everybody. You don't feel this way uh, for some reason. Um, no, I've been I've been through that. I mean, and I it could happen at any time. I expect. Yeah, and um, you know, it's I hate to say it, it, sort of depends where I'm sitting too. And I actually find it easier to sit closer to the front, and um, especially 
sitting inside for me is much more comfortable for whatever reason. I don't feel as self-conscious and this is in general, not just, um, Mahler 9, but especially in Mahler 9, you know, you just coming out of just silence, some of those things. Um, and you know, there's some of them are very delicate glissandos and things that, you know, you, you want to sound really, really smooth. You're just trying to get everything as smooth as you can, but like really soft, you know, yeah. and that's like, like really hard. It's hard to do. And you know, if you're all worried about it, it doesn't help obviously. So yeah, that's, that's what I would say is the bi- biggest challenge for me now with that piece. Well, in a way, I mean, it makes me think of Mozart where, you know, when you're a kid and you're learning Mozart concertos, let's say for the first time, there are so many challenges, things that are really difficult and you get older and you, those aren't a problem anymore, but then you discover the <laughs> even more important things that are a problem. And like, why doesn't this piece get any easier? So, don't you always feel like it's like the, it's like a bump in the, in the carpet and you're constantly trying to smooth it out. It just keeps popping up somewhere <laughs> yeah. else. Yeah. Well, I mean, and maybe nine is a special case. So the first Mahler symphony that I played was, like I said, the first two movements of the first symphony. What was it for you? Was nine actually the first Mahler symphony that you played? No, I think, um, no, you know, in college at least, in um, grad school we did one. Okay. Um, we did five, yeah, that, I think, that was, in college. I think I was 14 or 15 when I played those, that first half of number one. I didn't play, I don't think I did any Mahler in um, high school. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Maybe Mahler one, maybe part of Mahler one, but definitely played Mahler one as a grad student. And yeah, and at Harvard we did Mahler five at some point. And, you know, and that... I, I remember feeling so like, you know, I, I, I loved Mahler 5 so much. Yeah. like real specific memories but um you know, and I, I really think you just get these chills when you play it that you've probably never really felt playing something else well that was definitely one of the pieces i would think of when i thought for example you know i had my first job in the saint paul chamber orchestra and when i thought okay you know am, am i really gonna stay here forever because this is a great group with great colleagues I mean, Mahler 5, Mahler 1, those were the kind of pieces that made me think I, I couldn't I couldn't be without these pieces. Mahler 5 I played, I think I was also about 15 because I was, at those years I was subbing with the Lexington Philharmonic, you know, my the hometown pro group. And so, yeah, that was my first full Mahler symphony was playing number 5 when I was probably 15. And I forget if I actually got to hear it live maybe i mean i listened to so many recordings of it when i was growing up and i forget why I even how i started listening to it i mean i'm sure because you know we listen to the radio all the time and so i just you know find also things. that's 
that's one of those teenage pieces, right? Like if you've got your own stereo, you're, you're blasting Mahler. And... Maybe for us. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, think it's that's every, one of everybody's teenage but pieces. Everybody didn't do that? <laughs> Man, no wonder I wasn't invited to any parties <laughs> so you, in high school. You'd go to school and be like, hey, Dodgy, I don't really rock. No, I remember, you well, like... you know, Chris, you and if you're, if you're out there listening, um, you know, Chris, a bass player in high school, he was the one that I remember he actually, one day he took me, he's like, I don't come to school tomorrow unless you've listened to Mahler 2. He's like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play you the beginning of 2 and by play you, you know, because in those days we didn't have phones. He couldn't like pull up a YouTube. I mean, in the orchestra room, he just actually played me the beginning of Mahler 2 on the bass. And he's like, isn't this amazing? And, you know, I, I since I hadn't heard the piece, I was like, um, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm like you know, Sounds I trust like heavy you. Furniture movie, right? <laughs> I'll trust you if you if you say so. But and it's true. I found you know I looked through my parents' record collection. At that point, I had their record player down in my room with speakers, so I was discovering all kinds of fun stuff they were listening to in the seventies. Um, yeah, all their PDQ Bach albums. And, all right. Um, but yeah, I found Mahler too, and I put it on. I was like, wow, this is incredible. And um, I didn't end up playing that one for quite a few years. And that one is The Resurrection, yeah. right? And we're taking that on tour in just a couple of months to Scotland. What? Yeah, really? Aren't we playing We're Mahler playing it. We're not taking it on tour, I don't think. Oh. All right. Is it just at the Hollywood Bowl then? I think so. All right. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. Well, Mother um, Two is the I one that. I hope so. I mean, yeah. Geez, there's nothing. You hope we're taking it on yeah. tour. Yeah. Well, that's the one that starts. Um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it sort of resembles La Cucaracha. <laughs> no, not none of the Mexican hat dance. Mexican hat dance. Okay, right. So you know, it's a standard orchestra joke for you know, if there's a new conductor or something, and they're doing Mahler Two, the orchestra hazes them by actually. Playing da dun da dun da dun da 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 dun da dun in the, um, in yeah. the slow Mahler tempo. And well, and you remember what happened when we did that to Bernard Hightank? I don't remember very specifically. I don't imagine him. Uh, oh, you don't remember? Like we taking so we, the joke. So when you very say well. Hayes is a new conductor, when we did it to Hightank, and he yeah, that I don't understand. Why would you do that to Hightank? I, mean, I mean, I don't think we save it for new conductors. I think we just, I mean, not we. And that, well, it's like, not this up is to us. It's Chicago. Bass, I'm not sure if they're going to do it here. Bass and cello section. I mean, if they do it to Dudamel, he'll think it's funny. But um, Hightank, you know, I don't know. They did it, and he just stopped and looked horrified, and then started over. <laughs> so everyone was like, "Well, that didn't go over well." Well, they should have known that. I I was actually surprised at how little he thought it was funny. Yeah, um, I, maybe that's a testament to how much Mahler means to. I mean, he probably never heard that before. He's probably he probably didn't understand what that was. Right. He just thought like, "Why are these Americans playing wrong notes and rhythms?" Yeah. <laughs> wasn't too happy so well you remember steinhardt writes in his book um about george zell um when when steinhardt was assistant concertmaster or associate concertmaster of cleveland orchestra uh he says there was one time when the indians either won the world series or were in the world series and so at the beginning of one rehearsal when zell gave the downbeat for whatever you know germanic piece they were playing instead the orchestra had prearranged to play take me out to the ball game and uh they did that and he stopped conducting of course and yes yeah, similar thing he said 
Very good. Now, Beethoven's fifth. Or... Well, that was way better than what happened. I mean, Hightink really looked at us like we were, you know, <laughs> scum of the earth. And then, yeah, that wasn't wasn't so good. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I I hope we are playing it on tour. Um, now these are both choral symphonies, right? Do you? I mean, we we've mentioned how eight, which we're playing still this week, is not necessarily our favorite of of those. I mean, do you enjoy playing two more than eight or? Oh, I mean, by far. I think it's <laughs> much, much, much more enjoyable, but that's just my opinion. Well, the end of two, yeah, never fails to get me. I think three still might be my favorite. Your your favorite of all of them? I think so. Three. No, I mean, it's an amazing piece. I, for some reason, I thought it was clearly nine. Oh, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the appeal of nine is just so not obvious. But um, no, I mean, of course, I love nine. I, 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 you know, I have fond memories of like a lot of these pieces, you know. And, and, you know, sorry to keep going down memory lane. with. No, I mean, this, this is the Mahler them, episode. Yeah. But Mahler three, I mean, it's funny when I, you know, when you first mentioned talking about Mahler, I thought, well, I don't really have that much to say about it, but that's, you know, that's in the end, I guess I do. I mean, so I remember <laughs> we were, we took a Mahler three on tour and, um, Chicago um LA I think whatever we, you know maybe we were first here I think it was probably like 2012 or something okay we went to Europe with it and um tours are you know they can be hard I mean you're moving around a lot you're tired you're jet-lagged um you don't sleep well on tour and so it's just, it's a lot of just just trying to get through the, the schedule and I think we we'd given a few performances and I think the other program we we took was um, the Appalachian Spring one, and it's really showing showing our range. And, you know, <laughs> and that was just rough. I just felt like it wasn't good, and, and I don't know. The, everything about it made me kind of the opposite of comfortable. You know, just feeling like I just felt like we were dragging this thing around Europe, making ourselves look bad, and it was just not a good feeling. You know. And the other, you know, so it was Mahler 3 and that. And so the Mahler 3 I was enjoying more, but for other various reasons I can't really discuss. I was sort of aggravated, frustrated a lot of the time. And then no, it, it, it took me a few performances to actually figure out how to hone my focus correctly. For the Mahler? For the, for the Mahler 3 tour program. You know, and I think because I was a little bit thrown off by the other one and the other program we were taking that I didn't feel comfortable with at all. And and even though I love the Mahler, I was like, I'm not, just feel like I'm not in the, every night I'm having a really hard time getting in the zone, you know, um, just felt distracted and annoyed. And so finally we get to Paris, you know, and it was the new hall, it was our first performance there. And, and I, you know, it suddenly felt great. Like it suddenly felt like we, 
you know, when I say I was having a bad time, it's, you know, when you're in an orchestra, I think there's always this feeling like, is my experience what's happening right. to everyone else? There's, you know, you're not sure if there's like, it's, you're in sync with everybody. And sometimes you talk to people, you're like, that felt bad. And they're like, yeah, I know. I didn't feel like a good night. And right. yeah. And sometimes they're like, I actually thought it was pretty good. And you're like, well, I just had a bad night or whatever. But, um, but this concert, it was like something about it that the hall was great, you know, and it was our first time in there. And, and I think we'd played it enough times. And this is why I think, you know, I, I really, I hate this new trend with playing things once and leaving them or playing them once or twice and then walking away from a program, right? which is becoming a trend, you know, and I, I feel like that, that really doesn't get to the heart of what, what we, what we do, you know, as an ensemble, we're trying to, to work on these relationships with each other on stage, you know, get used to each other's sound, get used to listening, get used to, and it takes a lot of time and effort and just, you know, work together and performances to, to get to the point where you're just, you just are sensing each other correctly. And that's what the best performances are is when, when everyone is sensing each other, you know, and it's like, it's like a, just a, your the collective consciousness just reaches like a, a you know, a great level. Well, and for pieces like these Mahler symphonies, you you need that. I mean, there's no other way. Yeah. Yeah. And well, yes, you know, especially Mahler, but um, I would say Haydn, Mozart, that stuff is you yeah. know, really like it, it will <laughs> Any not... Any good music, basically. Yeah. Well, that it doesn't work at all if you don't have that. You know, I'm going to get on my, my soapbox here and talk about how, you know, you need to... That has to be a huge priority. If you find an orchestra that can do that, then they can do anything. But, you know, if, if they if they can't, if you can't have that feeling of, of being aware of each other without real effort or, you know, it has to have, to, has to be effortless. And I guess, you know, anybody who's performed or been to a great performance or, you know, you have a sense of that and it doesn't really need to be explained. But anyway, so, you know, this, this concert was, was where, you know, I had this feeling like this euphoric feeling kind of like this is, you know, sometimes this job is really hard. Sometimes it's like you, most of the time you feel like you're missing each other. <laughs> you know, and that's not terrible to say. I think, you know, the job is also about missing each other and trying to figure out how not to miss each other. But somehow this performance to me made that worth it. You know, the all the time that you spend trying to get this to work and when it does work, you know, I think it's, it's such, you know, you feel so validated by that, that I think this is, I had that memory of this, this hall and this performance of Mahler 3 that um, we were finally able to to communicate properly, you know, after trying really hard and not getting it done. So, you know, that, that was my very fond memory of, of Mahler three. Yeah. I remember that concert too. And something about that being our first performance in that hall too. I, maybe there was extra effort. Yeah. And Paris, yeah. you know, you want to, there are obviously cities where for me anyway, I feel like there's more on the line here because we want to come back here. We want the audience to love us, you know, and I hate to say it, not to call out any particular place, but someplace, you know, like, you know, Essen, like we used to go with Chicago. It's, like, yeah, it's not that much going on here. And like, you know, but then you feel more relaxed. You probably play better. But, you know, I, I think you're someplace right. like Berlin or Vienna or, or Paris. It's like, you, you know, you just feel really like it's got to be, got to be really good. So that was satisfying. Well, LA Phil will play in Carnegie Hall for the first time in a while. Oh, no pressure pretty soon. And I, I believe it'll be the same kind of thing there. I mean, one thing I want to touch on before we wrap up and before we leave the topic of Mahler, which uh, 
Yeah, we've had more to say on maybe than we thought. You know, this idea of him writing so many details into the score and and the parts, and even, you know, in a lot of cases, putting bowings in the string parts, which some of them work very naturally and very well. Some of them you kind of wonder, did he really, really want that? Or is this sort of aspirational, like he's showing us what he's going for, but he expects maybe that we'll do something different. Um, from what I read, from what I hear, you know, he he really wanted orchestras to follow his instructions, but, you know, clearly the best performances have to have still that spontaneity, right? Where you're, you've absorbed the instructions to the point where you can, you know, you can, you can do them without thinking and, and therefore you can kind of go beyond them, right? Sure. Yeah. Again, that's why I think, you know, the multiple performances, yeah. you know, that kind of, that, that, is that's the level that you get to when you do that. But I mean, that's why it was so hard for me to read as a teenager, for example. I mean, for, first of all, just the fact that it's in German. And I'm sure at that point, I just started getting my head around all the Italian terms, <laughs> which are, you know, you're supposed to start learning when you're five years old. But, you know, in German, you know, my teachers or conductors would always ask, do you know what this means? You know, you, we just passed this this bar line. Do you know what that says? <laughs> I'd be like, ah, no, what you like, eh. Can you more? imagine now? It's just take out your phone and well, like, that's back true. then to find out what something meant, like you have to go to like, the library or something. Well, you know, my parents uh, bought me a, a musical dictionary. Okay. And yeah, I, I had to, you know, I had to carry it around in my bag all the time, but I, I really didn't take it out as often as I should. I mean, now I coach people and I, I can't believe they bring some excerpt or something and I'd find myself saying the same thing. I'm like, do you know what this means? Uh, no. And I, like, I tear my hair out and I'm like, it means go twice as fast. <laughs> like you're playing it at the same tempo. This says go Double twice as fast. You're, you're about to take an audition <laughs> and you're going to play twice too slow. Yeah, or... But I mean, honestly, when, when I look at Mahler, I feel like, um, there are a lot of things that aren't Mark, I think it's sort of not what you were saying. I think it's like the opposite of what you said before. But Well, it's weird because the things that aren't marked, yeah, you, when you stop to think how much he did mark it. Well, for example, the beginning of the Fifth Symphony with the trumpet solo. Uh-huh. And this confused me when I was a teenager because I had the trumpet cue in our part, you know, And it's written as an even triplet. But nobody plays it that right. Uh, nobody plays it that way. <laughs> you know, and that's not written in. It's never been in any edition of Mahler 5. But as long as people play that piece, it'll, you know, it's passed down. It's an oral tradition, right? Yeah, and that's, that is amazing. But what's more amazing is that you can get 18 people to do something that's not in the part just because it's, it's you mean like a violin done. section yeah like that happens yeah. a lot you know just and even articulations i think it's it's just fun it's part of what's fun about playing in an orchestra i think like you suddenly you're like everybody is playing these notes really short and that's not marked or you know um they're articulating these notes they're th as if there's accents on them and there's not and of course you know that we don't want to veer into the realm of just bad 
playing habits, but I mean, there are a lot of things like that that exist in Mahler. I think that people are surprised. It's like, oh, so these are like, dun, 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 you know, like those has that, those emphases. And it's like, but that's not Mark. Like, how are you supposed to know? Or... Well, and for that reason, don't you find that coaching people who are going to take an audition and a Mahler symphony is on the list, uh, don't you find that those are some of the toughest ones to get your point across? Oh, yeah. Because it's not even, it's not even, it's it's like, unless you've actually sat there and played it, it's like, it makes yeah. no sense. You know, I mean, the things that move forward, um, that Mahler 10 excerpt that gets on a lot of violin auditions, it's like the momentum moves toward these, these subito dynamics and then it suddenly kind of pulls back. Tempo-wise, it actually pulls back. Sometimes it speeds up and pulls back and it's not marked. And it's frustrating to, you know, to have to learn it that way. And, and, and it's almost like you you have a visceral feeling of how it goes and unless you've actually played it it's really hard to transmit what that is yeah and, and of I, course there's recordings that helps but um but you know of course there's you worry there's different interpretations of stuff you don't want to do something weird at the audition you know you hear something on the recording you don't see it marked in the part you're like i don't know if i should do that or not right well what's <laughs> what's the solution for anybody out there taking an audition short of Hiring guess, an orchestra to yeah, I, mean, I guess you play it for for orchestra people and see yeah. hope that they have good taste and you know see what the consensus might be yeah um but that that is tough especially these the the Mahler excerpts without having played the pieces but playing along with a recording I think can actually take you a decent way toward but I think you have to you have to have a quality stereo or quality headphones and kind of turn it up and feel yourself as part of the section. And I think also if you have a good grasp of, of that composer's overall intentions, yeah. like if you, a lot of that stuff's not, you know, okay, it's specific to that excerpt, sure, but, you know, Mahler has a way of writing things or, you know, that there's a general Mahler sound or like way that things go. That I think, you know, it things do make sense in context. Or, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if they dug up some Mahler symphony that no one knew about <laughs> until now, I feel confident that I would have a better understanding of it now than I did when I was 20 years old, for sure. And, you know, it's not as if if you do something in an audition that isn't always done by the orchestra you're auditioning for you know it's, it is not at all a make or break thing i mean no the, you know, who cares? Be like, i mean is, sounds great they're you know they obviously know the music and it, you know in that case someone would say can you try it this way and if you can take direction well that's all they really want so right i mean there's there's sounding musical like does, does something make sense and it's i always think of the analogy of the the spy like if you know someone who's trying to pass as a different nationality or like, like they speak a different language and you have to go to a party and convince everyone that you're a native. And, you know, I, I don't think an audition is necessarily doesn't have to go quite to that degree. You know, as long as you speak the language decently well, nobody cares if your accent is exactly native. You, you just don't want to do the uh, Indiana Jones. Oh, <laughs> Is that in the first, is that in Raiders? Where, I forget. You're the, yeah, the expert. But yeah, yeah, Harrison Ford is bragging about a colleague of his that you know, he can speak, you know, a hundred languages. He'll blend in. He'll, as soon as he lands, you'll never find him again. He'll blend in. And then they cut to the next scene and he's wearing a bright white linen suit and he's a foot taller than everyone else. And he's like, hello, does anyone here speak English? 
<laughs> yeah, you you don't want to be that guy at the audition. <laughs> yeah, well, and that happens with with Mahler. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's probably a good place to to leave you for uh, for today for this week. And um, thanks as always for being with us. And this is the last week of our season, right? Yeah, tomorrow's our last concert for a month. So after that doesn't mean we're stopping uh, playing the violin. We'll, I'll be. We'll let you know how vacation's going. Yeah, well, I'll be traveling to teach in a few different festivals, and um, I think we're going to spend some time in the recording studios here in LA, play on some film soundtracks. And, and the the sequel to it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I won't look at the screen. I'm too scared. <laughs> yeah. You're not a horror buff. Make sure you click on subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love for you to be with us every week. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>